A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Uh, this is a special episode because it's kind of like a last-minute Halloween episode. <laughs> As part of our network, we uh, both engaged in the Agoraphobia Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel and I uh, did a sort of reading of the the works of Ambrose Bierce and and placed him within the tradition of weird fiction. Uh, so please go listen to that. That was a lot of fun to do. And I think if you're a fan of our show and what we do, uh, you'd be pretty interested in that one. And uh, I did a brief little meditation on monsters and the Baroque. I can't really recommend that you go listen to that, but the network advises <laughs> me that I should recommend that you listen to it. Um, and being a little bashful there. And, uh, but and tonight, I think we should also say that, uh, these episodes can be found at the Agora Podcast Network. Uh, their feed, it's available wherever, uh, podcasts are sold. So on your, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, all, all the various, uh, podcast apps, you're going to search for Agora Podcast Network. They have their own feed. And that's, uh, that's where those episodes will show up. Yeah, absolutely. And there are links to those shows in the show notes. So check the show notes. You can find the links right there and it'll take you right to it. So that was a lot of fun to do. And, um, in, in the spirit of the season though, we wanted to do something really, really briefly on Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, when, when you're thinking about, I guess, classic horror or spookiness in the American vein, uh, Poe comes up. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the Ambrose Bierce talk, I sort of offhandedly threw out that Ambrose Bierce is to Edgar Allan Poe as the cramps are to the cure. <laughs> and uh, Well, you know, I was meditating a little bit more on that, and I still think it's an apt comparison. But I, I figured this might be more in the vein of what you're looking for, for spooky stuff or, or something that you might be a little bit more familiar with. And uh, I, I, I have a particular take on the Poe story, The Telltale Heart. Um, and I just thought it might be fun to walk you through that take, uh, both you, the listener and you, Daniel. Yes. And I, I, I was going to say that, uh, this is actually the first time I've read the telltale heart. I've read a number of other, uh, Edgar Allan Poe stories. I actually discussed them on 
our uh, esteemed podcasting colleague, uh, John McCoy's podcast, Sophomore Lit. I discussed uh, Fall of the House of Usher and I uh, believe Mask of the Red Death. Um, so I've, I'm not unfamiliar with Poe's stories, but I've never read The Telltale Heart until Claude frantically messaged me and said, I have an idea for a surprise episode. <laughs> and um, and I'd always just kind of assumed I knew what, it, knew what it was just from reputation, you know, and also let's be clear. Let's, you know, let's be honest that uh, that one episode of The Simpsons where Lisa's threatened <laughs> by an overachieving student who creates a beautiful diorama of the Telltale Heart for the school diorama competition. I thought I knew what the story was. I, you know, I thought like, okay, I'll just finally get around to reading it and I won't be surprised. Um, reader, let me just tell you, reader and listener, uh, there's a reason why it always pays off to go actually read the books you think you know what they're about. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel tonight. Uh, okay. And to the listener, um, you might want to put the kids to bed for this one. Uh, <laughs> not that, that kids would, would really be that interested in what we're spewing anyway, or, or that many people would be interested in what we're spewing anyway. But the, um, th- this is going to be a little bit rough because here's, here's my hypothesis. I'm going to mm-hmm. throw this out there is that the telltale heart is all about, uh, slavery and sodomy. Hmm. Yeah. That's what the story is. Uh, now, mm-hmm. to make that make sense, uh, maybe we should have recourse to a little bit of background information on Poe. All right. So Poe was um, – he was born in January 19th, 1809, and he died uh, October 7th, 1849. So he missed Halloween that year. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That was, yes, he that did. Was, that was dumb. Um, Poe occupies this, this really kind of strange space. Um, I, I said this before in a previous agoraphobia. We, we, we talked a little bit about Poe and followed the house of Usher. Uh, I think it was like two years ago when we were working on this. Um, maybe I'll track that down and have that in the show notes as well. We were talking about the Gothic in general or, or that was last year, I think. Anyway, yeah. I'll see if I can scrounge that up. I mean, well, case, you know, living in the age of COVID has utterly scrambled everyone's perception of time. I think you're fine. Right. So anyway, uh, I'll see if I can scrounge that up and put that in the show notes as well. But yeah. um, the the he, he occupies this interesting place. And I, I sort of said this before that um, a lot of his works weren't necessarily the dark, gloomy, creepy stuff. Um, the darn gloomy, creepy stuff was good clickbait. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it encapsulated some of his ideas about how literature and affect function. And those ideas are, are more spelled out in a lot of his criticism. But, um, the, the dark, gloomy stuff was there. Then you also had the poetry where he sort of spells out this sort of romantic idealism. Or bemoans the loss of a kind of romantic idealism. He was sort of in the vein of this um, visionary excess, though he also wrote one of the most obnoxious poems I've ever read in my life called The Bells. <laughs> yes, um, yes. His poetry, I guess for me, is, is hit or miss, though he does have the rhythm. He can go into this rhapsodic mode, which is really kind of amazing just for the sound of it. But a lot of the content is just, eh. 
Um, speaking of the Simpsons, that reading that the Simpsons did on, I believe it was the very first Treehouse of Horror. Of oh yes, the Raven, the Raven is yeah. really worth checking out. Uh, they they more or less get it right. All right. Anyway, to get back to it though, he he occupies a couple of strange places. The the there are also tons of I guess sci-fi stories mm-hmm. or or what would be sort of early fantasy or early sci-fi fantasy before that was really a term. And then there are the hoaxes. Yes. Um, he was great at hoaxes and these comedic things. And there are some works that critics still aren't sure. Was this a joke? <laughs> some of the works <laughs> right. that are traditionally put under the the other stories, like the um, the gloomy gothic tales, some of them might be specific satires of things or 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 ideas or authors who were lost to time. So it's it's up in the air where certain works fit. It's like what exactly was he trying to do? Yeah. But, um he he had a pretty grim life uh I guess after his 18th year. Well, even before that. But um not everything he wrote was necessarily reflective of that and he was a very good magazine editor and journalist. Uh he was uh he he was sort of famous for being able to um take a literary magazine and turn it around. Uh, he would use his connections. He would use his talent. He would use whatever he could. He could use sort of like his tendency for hatchet jobs to draw attention to the magazine and he could turn it around. Um, in fact, he was really well known in his own time as a critic and his criticism is sometimes purposefully pugilistic uh, really just going after things either to draw attention to his own ideas or to, to draw attention to the magazine or because he just really hated something that was written. So he, <laughs> he was combative. He could be very, very combative. In fact, at one point he, he, I believe he walked out on a job. Uh, he shot himself in the foot because, um, the editor had wanted him to tone down the reviews it was like, no, screw you, I'm out. And then he didn't eat for two weeks. Um, the, a lot of the contours of his life, I think, are already known. Um, his father was pretty much out of the picture early on, and his mother died when he was extraordinarily young. Uh, he was born in Boston, and apparently uh, he sort of considered himself a, a I guess a Bostonite or hmm. Bostoner, whatever you would say. Yeah. In fact, his, his mother sort of in, I, I think some of her, her letters to him after she died, like she wrote some things to him to always consider himself uh, a Boston man or something like that. But, um, he had an, uh, an older brother and a younger sister. I think the brother was older and the sister was younger. And his, his mother who was an actress, who I think was not, you know, she wasn't exactly the the most famous actress of her day. She was sort of a bit part player, uh, but they had some family friends, and I, it appears, from what I can make out, it appears that they were in a traveling show that ended up in Richmond, Virginia, and she died there. Um, 
I think that's what the DLD said, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing this without notes, so you know, <laughs> go look it's, it's at a- the dictionary of literary bi- biography yourself. Yes. In any case, he um, the the family was pretty much split up between three family friends in Richmond, Virginia, and Poe went to live with the Allens. Um, his stepmother really sort of doted on him; she loved him very much, and his stepfather um, it, it was more than tolerated him. Because his stepfather appeared to be grooming him for this kind of th- – this life as a Virginia gentleman. Mm-hmm. Now, they they weren't the aristocracy. They were sort of haute bourgeois, mm-hmm. uh, upper middle class um, merchants. And his father sort of ran his own company. Um, at a certain point when Poe, I guess, was um, – sort of elementary school age, they went to England and lived there for, I believe, about two years. Uh, he was sent to boarding schools and some of the best boarding schools. He excelled in Latin and French. His languages were excellent. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I said this, I believe I made this point in our earlier discussion about this last year on the Gothic, that my, my reigning theory is that Poe took off in France because – he always goes for the Latinate word. Mm-hmm. When, when he's easy to translate. Um, he will always pick, like he'll pick chamber over bedroom, right? Uh, which is easy to translate le chambre, right? So yeah. it's there, there's something about him that I think is easy to translate into Latinate languages, but he really was um, – very good with the languages and he won several top prizes not just in elementary school but also in high school and in college and in the military institute for his facility with languages he had some um greek as well i believe so he could read homer so he was educated in this way he was being sort of prepped to be a virginia gentleman even though they weren't the planter aristocracy Mm -hmm. so they get back to virginia and um he you know he's still sort of being groomed by his stepfather uh, to a point uh he has a, a sort of romantic relationship with a woman uh well a girl okay he's 17 she's 15 oh, yeah. but um they they have this romantic relationship and it seems to be heading towards an official courtship and then uh it breaks off suddenly and he never quite understands why he goes to UVA and here's what appears to have happened he um he spent a lot of money to sort of portray himself as the Virginia gentleman that he felt he was being groomed to be. Mm-hmm. Now, this didn't quite go over well with his stepfather because by this time, his stepfather's uh, business prospects had really kind of dissolved. Like the firm had had to dissolve and break up. And so his stepfather was scrambling a little bit more. So he's not exactly in the same financial position that he had been in. Mm-hmm. And his stepfather uh, sort of pulls the plug on a lot of stuff and he leaves UVA just sort of embarrassed and scandalized by this debt that he he accumulated, assuming that his father's position would sort of get him out of it. So that wasn't a happy occurrence. <laughs> they have a huge uh, throwdown and – 
at 18, he's basically out the door. Um, he visits his brother. He's still in contact with his brother and sister, right? Yeah. Like his biological brother and sister. And so, um, he, he writes to them, he meets with them and he eventually goes into the army, uh, under an assumed name. And apparently he was doing well. He could have been a good soldier. Um, he was sort of recognized by um, his superiors and they thought this is a guy who should move up the ladder and who should have some rank. And they started pushing him to go to VMI, yeah. the, the military institute. And it seems like a great idea because he's – okay, here's – Reading between the lines, it seems like there's one thing which made him stand apart. He could read and write. He was yeah, educated. Yeah, right, right. Uh, which, you know, this was a the time of, um, you know, the 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 gentleman officer was a, uh, you know, well, I guess it would have been a kind of like there was a complicated relationship about gentlemanliness in the kind of the the post Jacksonian Republic, which you know this yeah. kind of all all fits into, but. But at the time, like yeah, like the, you know, the military was looking for cachet when it came with its officer yeah. class, and so yeah, having a guy who already you know could could read his Thucydides and explain it to uh, the other cadets. This is fascinating though, because I'm imagining like, God, how much different would American letters have been if Edgar Allan Poe was like best known to Civil War dads as some <laughs> some some chump lieutenant who ate it at Gettysburg because and took his charge or something. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. He was publishing poetry. Like yeah. at this point, um, I think around 18, 19, maybe 20, okay. he publishes first book of poems. Um, a lot of them had been written or at least started around the time he was 12 or 13. But he'd been polishing them like over years and years and years and years and years and put them out. Now, the way he published them, he was known in the ranks for writing sort of sketches yeah. Uh, sort of biographical sketches about the officers and about the other men and sort of like these sketches of soldierly life. And so he apparently told everyone that he was putting a book together of that stuff and got a bunch of money and got a subscription, which is what you would do. You would sort of collect mm -hmm. money and say, you know, it, it, this was something that they did uh, coming into the 18th and into the 19th century, you'd get a mm -hmm. subscription. You'd say, hey, um, I'm putting this book out. Um, and if you'd like a copy, sign your name now. Give me the money now. We'll print it and I'll give it to you when it when it comes out. Well, it's, it's like uh, um, it's the uh, it's the, you know, 18th, 19th century version of Kickstarter. Yeah, except Alexander Pope became a millionaire doing this because Alexander Pope <laughs> published a best-selling translation of the the Iliad. The Iliad. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I remember. So also, anyway, um, that's how. Uh, didn't Samuel Johnson? He funded his dictionary that way, right? Exactly. Selling subscriptions. Exactly. That while he worked on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was apparently just what you did. Yeah. Uh, so um, he pulled a bait and switch. It looks like <laughs> um, he told him it was going to be these sketches and this book of poems come out. And they're like, "What the hell is this thing?" Uh, anyway, so he he's he's published. He's known, and then o over the years, he kind of adds to that volume. Um, there, there are other poems that he sort of collects together and sort of puts through that, but that's kind of like the basic volume that, that, that sort of came out first. And, um, 
so he uh, his offer like his his commanding officers sort of recognize okay this is a smart guy uh, he could rise to the ranks but let's get him you know the 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 credentials and stuff and so his commanding officer uh, facilitates a reconciliation between Poe and his stepfather and uh, the whole point was in order to um, in order to get into VMI, he had to have his stepfather's permission or he had to have sort mm-hmm. of like this official statement or something like that. And so um, he paid a guy to take his place, which is what you did. Yes. Um, he paid someone to take his place in the military and then went to VMI. Um, never actually paid the guy. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, but – Boy, I, he, I really hope he didn't end up just like, I don't know – dying in the Mexican-American war or something, never having been well, paid. <laughs> he tried it. I mean, it's, it's up in the air as to what actually happened to the, to the money. And this seems to be yeah. his pattern. He wasn't good with money, either just being a spendthrift or expecting more to come down the line. Um, you know, when his stepfather found out about the money thing, he was really pretty livid. Um, he, he went to uh, the military institute um, and and was doing well up to a point, uh, but then um, had this kind of um, – I'm sorry. It, it wasn't VMI. I believe it was West Point. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> – extemporarily but um it, it was west point not vmi I, okay. i'm getting my my um the, the military, military academy is mixed up yeah. uh, confused yeah uh apologies anyway <laughs> so um he he had another sort of falling out with his father and then or or with his stepfather was basically okay that's it i'm out of here uh, i don't want to do this anymore and so he got himself discharged and apparently it was at this point that he sort of started drinking heavily alone yeah um he kicked around a lot and that was the thing um he was always trying to cobble together some kind of existence with his pen uh he ended up in the 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 home or sort of like the household of his aunt um and it was that relationship which eventually led him to marry his 13-year-old cousin uh but again that seems more they first of all they stayed together for 10 years uh so she was 23 when she died um if i remember correctly and by the end, it seems to have been some kind of loving relationship, but she was also, you know, pretty tubercular. So I don't know exactly mm-hmm. how far that could have gone. Um, but, uh, it, it seems to have been weird at the time. He apparently faked the, her age on the marriage certificate, said she was 21. Um, so it's not like this was the thing to do, right? But um, the motivation does appear to have been some kind of stability because the family unit was the structural unit of the 19th century, you know, and it, it looks to be as if he was trying to cobble together some kind of family in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, he, he was broke a lot. 
And I mean, when I when I say broke, I mean we're we're talking dirt poor. Yeah, he was yeah. working and working and working on um, editing magazines up and down the East Coast. Uh, he was selling whatever stories he could, taking whatever jobs he could. <clears throat> so it, it's a hard scrabble existence, but he is good at his job, and he does develop this reputation. Um, a- after his wife does die, things get worse. Mm-hmm. And his drinking gets worse. Um, he most likely suffered a couple of strokes. In fact, the the that sort of famous picture of him, where you know it looks like one side of his face is crooked. Yeah. The the most famous daguerreotype. He had probably within the past forty eight hours uh, of when that that daguerreotype was taken had had a stroke. So he was not the best of health. Um, Some of his quote unquote maniacal behavior was most likely not due to, or, or his mental disorientation or, or things like that were most likely not due to drinking. They were probably due to the series of strokes that he had like in, in his thirties. Anyway, (laughs) to keep going, (laughs) Um, he, he worked his reputation enough that he developed, he, he sort of developed a career on the speaking circuit and he was a great reciter of his own verse. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he could perform the Raven and he sort of developed this coterie of, I guess, devotees who would pay him for his services as um, sort of a workshopper. And it's kind of like this weird moment in, did you ever see the really, really horrible John Cusack film, The Raven? No, I I vaguely recall it coming out, but I never saw it. Don't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, it's really not worth it, but um, they, they take all kinds of liberties with Poe's life and they sort of have this mystery thing where, um, you know, it's Poe ends up dying trying to solve this one last mystery or something like that, or it's Poe as a detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it does not get anything about his life right except for one thing. Uh, at the very beginning of it, he's re- reciting the Raven to this group of elderly women who come ask him advice on their poems about bees well, yeah, that was the accurate part because yeah. he had this coterie of um, sort of older women who um, kind of stuck up for him and and um, would take these workshops with him where he would critique their poetry. So uh, things were were going reasonably well, and he ended up getting a kind of proposal from a dowager who was basically like, look, um, I know we're not the most romantic couple possible, but I can keep you afloat and you can work on your verse and maybe show the world, you know, without like, if you actually focus on your writing and, and have the material wherewithal to be able to focus on your writing, then you can produce the works of genius that we all know you're capable of. And that, that was the, the point that I was making, he really was a smart guy and he really was a capable guy. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about an idiot here. He, he had the scholarship. 
he had the chops. His first book of poems was cobbled together from stuff he'd been writing since the age of like 12 or 13. Uh, he, he, I, I really am kind of curious of what he could have produced, but uh, it was on the way to travel up to meet her in New York that he mysteriously disappeared for three days and then was sort of found um, in the gutter. Ah. Uh, there are several, um, there are several, I guess, hypotheses about what might've happened. It does kind of seem as if he had gotten press ganged into a kind of voting scheme. Um, that's something that they would do is these gangs would, would around the time of an election, um, people from the party would show up at your door and say, Hey, uh, tell you what, if you go in there and vote for our guy, we'll buy you a drink. Yeah. Then, uh, come on out, change clothes and go in and vote for him again. We'll buy you another drink. And we'll keep this up and we'll just keep changing clothes and you pretend to be somebody else and uh, we'll keep that going. And if you say no, they say, how about this? We are going to follow you in there and you're going to vote for our guy. And then you're going to come out and change clothes with us. And if you don't, <laughs> we'll beat the snot out of you. Yes. So it was, uh, there, there's some speculation because he seemed to be wearing clothes that didn't fit him. Huh. Uh, that's, I think, how that goes. He may have been diabetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, diabetes mixed with alcohol use and abuse, that's yeah. not too good either. And he had already most likely had at least two strokes in his life. So whatever happened to him, um, it was probably exacerbated by his ill health, poor diet, poverty, and everything like that. Um, but he he left behind his legacy – with all of these stories and poems and also his biography, uh, more than anything, I think it's the biography that people know or that people are most aware of. Um, the, the, uh, sorry. Um, it's the, the biography that most people are aware of. Um, you know, it's, it's that, that doomed poet, that, that cursed poet, I'm too pure for this world. Um, my gifts are unappreciated by this world. Okay. There's a part of that. That's kind of true in Poe's case, yeah. but, um, you know, he set himself up uh, in a lot of ways. He was a guy who could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know? <laughs> he shot himself in the foot in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, but the, the main thing that you want to impart is never have your literary enemy be your literary executor. Um, (laughs) Griswold, uh, who became his literary executor, uh, also wrote this biography about what an opium addict and drunk, uh, Poe was. Um, he was also one of his literary enemies. I mean, Poe wrote hatchet jobs on Griswold now, but he hated the guy. Uh, so, you know, it's, that added to the mystique. Uh, was he an opium addict? No, apparently he tried opium once, but didn't do it right and ended up, you know, vomiting the whole night. Um, and, uh, you know, he did drink, but there were periods of intense sobriety. I mean, at one point he joined, I think it was the Shaco temperance league, 
um, if you're from Richmond, you'll recognize the, the, the term Shaco because it's sort of like a, a local thing. Um, but yeah, so there were periods off and on. He doesn't appear to have been the, the sort of maniac that Griswold makes him out to be. Yeah. Um, he appears to be uh, a guy who had an expectation of living a particular kind of life. Um, but was frustrated from that in a lot of different ways and then sort of took it as a badge of honor that he was the black sheep. Later on, he found out, um, he reconnected with the, the girl now woman who he'd had uh, a romance with when he was 17. And she told him that her father had met his father or his stepfather. And this was when he was like 16, 17, still back in his father's good graces and kind of like the golden child. And his stepfather, uh, told her father that there was no way he was going to make Poe his legitimate heir. Yeah. So his, his stepfather had ruined that relationship. And his stepfather appears to have been something of a son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> he, he was a pretty heavy drinker himself. Um, after his wife died, uh, and Poe was very, very close to his stepmother. After yeah. his wife died, um, he started courting another woman. Um, while the woman he was having an affair with bore him two illegitimate kids. Oh, well, so yeah, it's not, you know, there's a lot about, um, Alan that appears to, to leave a lot to be desired. But anyway, so that's kind of the background information on this. Now the telltale heart is, um, one of these stories that he wrote that really is in the the realm of the Gothic. Mm-hmm. And or I believe it was around the time that his own wife died that he switched to writing these first-person narratives about someone either gleefully or calmly confessing to all this horrible shit that they've done. Yeah. So you've got things like the Cask of Amontillado, which is in a sort of similar vein, and then you've got Telltale Heart. Um. Now, the way I like to approach this, particularly when I'm teaching this, is to talk about the theory of, um, I guess, Freud's idea of the return of the repressed. Uh Uh, Freudian psychoanalysis is engaged in using, I guess, like the text of what it is that the analyzed tells the analyzand if I've got those terms right, I think I do <laughs> yeah. uh, using the text of what the, the analyzed says in order to understand the unconscious motivations that are adding to the symptoms, right. Or that yeah. have developed the symptoms. So what are the unconscious motivations uh, happening here? And, the return of the repressed is this idea in Freud that the more you, I mean, it's really pretty easy to understand. The more you try to keep something down, the more you keep it, you know, bottled up, the more it's going to exacerbate the symptom. Right. And, and that really is how a lot of post stories work. Uh, telltale heart, um, <clears throat> Follow the House of Usher is in Definitely. the same yeah. vein. I was I was gonna say like that, you know, honestly, like I wish I had much more of a grounding in uh in Freud <laughs> when I when I had read Follow the House of Usher. Um <laughs> that there there's there's a lot to apply to uh to that particular story. 
Well, if we're alive long enough to get to the 20th century, um, you will <laughs> in, in our, in our project. Excellent. Excellent. But that's, that's the sort of engine of the story because there's this really curious, uh, aspect to it. Daniel, what is the motivation for the murder? This is a first person narrator mm-hmm. explaining how he murdered an old man. What is the, 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 the motivation for the murder? Well, the motivation for the murder is that uh, this old man just keeps looking at him with his roomy old eye. And and we can't have that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, This is this is the second paragraph. Well, let's first start with the the first paragraph. Okay. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I tell you the whole story. Okay. What he's starting here is with this kind of confession that um, there's this intensification of sensorial ability. Mm-hmm. And this is the through line from Poe to French Decadence. That's like um, Baudelaire picked up on this. The esthete is the person who is more attuned to sensation. Right. Right. And, you know, Walter Pater's whole intellectual career is, is based on this. The, the esthete is the person who can understand sensation, who will, try any sensation in order to articulate the sensation and argue whether or not the sensation is worth having. Yeah. So this emphasis on sensation and an excess of sensation really ties Poe to that whole tradition. And I, I think it's here and possibly in house of Usher that, um, you know, this, this idea of excess of sensation really gets elaborated on. In Fall of the House of Usher, Roderick Usher uh, is overly sensitive to all kinds of aesthetic material, but mostly to music. It, it produces this kind of intense affect in him, and it makes him unable to do anything. It's like the 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 aesthetic sense is so strong in him that it's debilitating. Hmm. And... I mean, all you have to do is read that story, this story, and um, Weiman's uh, novel Against Nature or uh, Alain Rabour, um, which was a favorite of Oscar Wilde's. And you see the through line. Like, uh, Weiman's writing is just a, a sort of exaggeration of what was already there in Poe. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So all of. <laughs> All of aestheticism and all of French decadence goes straight back to this. All right. But the idea is that he has been excited to a point. His sensations and his senses have been excited to a point that he must commit this act. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. 
But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Okay. So first of all, um, this text always fascinates me because it seems as if he's making up the excuse as he goes along. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why it seems so open to a psychoanalytic reading is because this does sound like an improvised confession, which is what, <laughs> what any session with your analyst is going to be. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and also right. a kind of, uh, a kind of backfilling of, uh, awareness or um the kind of um, the kind of discovering of uh motivation i mean that's the whole core of psychoanalysis right like you you're trying to discover why you keep doing the things you do uh or i mean that's a very simplistic way of putting it of course but like no but i mean and and the kind of like you know popular understanding of it though is like what you know the whole i I think one of the key insights of Freud that you can still take away from it just you know leaving aside the you know variously and and thoroughly debunked kind of other sort of ideas that he had but this idea that unconscious motivation is a powerful factor in human volition or lack thereof you know so that so that you can you go back through what you have done and only in in this kind of recollection can you invent a reason uh yeah no, that, that's exactly it. It's it's this kind of retroactive um, reasoning. That's 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 exactly it. And the the whole point is the, all right. It 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 comes somewhat spontaneously, and then you have this weirdness of the eye, and you sort of think about. Um, what an eye is, what an eye does, how an eye operates. And you can look at the eye as the, the, the sort of, it's the gaze. Mm -hmm. It's the look and the looking is often connected to this kind of desiring. And what appears to be problematic in this old man's eye is the way that it looks and does not see. Yes. If that makes sense. So the problem with the old man's eye is that it has a cataract. Yeah. All right. And it appears to creep out this speaker. Um, but it's also, here's where we're starting to get into it. It's also a, a sort of signifier of a failure to acknowledge or, or a, either a failure to acknowledge desire Mm-hmm. Or a failure to transmit desire. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole, um, you know, sub theory of this. I think the easiest way, if anybody wants to access it, is to go to John Berger's uh, Ways of Seeing. Oh, yeah. And, and Berger is very. Um, hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's very attuned to the way that looking is connected with desire, particularly when looking at the nude form. Yes, I, I, w- I was going to say like the uh, I highly recommend. I, I believe it's on YouTube. The uh, yeah. Ways of Seeing John Berger. It's a four part series. It's um, it's amazing, and it it really like I it demolished my my snide. 18 year old self when a freshman comp teacher showed it in class um, to my everlasting debt um, because I was real, like whatever about the visual arts. And I, you know, just, just because simply like in typical teenage fashion, it's not something that really, you know, strummed my heartstrings all that much. So I just assumed that it was not worth anyone's time, you know, Um, or that was a bunch of pretentious hooey. Uh, But Watching Ways of Seeing was it's absolutely eye-opening, so to speak, um, and I, I highly recommend it. But yeah, absolutely, like this kind of connecting um, vision, sight, desire, and communication. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got this frustration, <clears throat> or what? I, what I think could be read as a frustration, and you've also got the curious nature of the relationship between them. Uh, you have the narrator and you have the old man mm-hmm. and they live together in the same house. What is their relationship? Mm-hmm. It's never made clear in the story. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but it, it sort of starts out with this weird ambiguity at the opening of it or, or, or this weird, he okay. How do I put it? He's not giving us the details that would seem to be necessary. 
Right. Right. Like if you read Cask of Amontillado, that's all about the details up front. Yeah. And, you know, we get all kinds of information about the motivations and everything like that, where it's just a simple sadistic uh, count doing what a sadistic count does. But here, we're not even quite sure what this relationship is. All right. So the plan is to do this, um, to walk into the dude's room every night with a lantern Mm-hmm. to turn the beam on slowly to see if the old man will open the eye. And if the old man doesn't open the eye, he's safe. Mm-hmm. And if he does, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Okay. Um, he says, ha, would a madman have been so wise as this? All right. Well, I'll take it back a little bit further. Yeah. Um, I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently. And then when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Okay, Daniel. (laughs) When I say this Uh is all about sodomy... As it followed closely, oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. That was – I immediately was like, oh, (laughs) and reading that part. Um, Yeah. Now, okay, here's here's the the iffy part about psychoanalytic readings. Um, You don't necessarily – because it's relying on this idea of the unconscious Mm – then the artist can protest till you know they're blue in the face or dead in the ground that no that's not what i intended and yet the theory will say well it doesn't matter what you intended it's unconscious <laughs> right so did poe intend for this to sound like some kind of sexual violation yeah well honestly i don't know yeah because there are so many inside jokes and puns and sort of other weird references all throughout his work that I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know what the intention was with this one. Um, but it once you say it, you can't unsee it. Well, and right? also, I mean, there's certainly a, a, a libidinal rhythm to it. I mean – I, 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 and again, like, you know, I, I guess maybe we are, you know, I don't know. I mean, to think, you know, accusing either of us of reading too much into, uh, you know, but what are we here to do? What are we here to talk about? How do we fill up the hour, you know? But, uh, (laughs) but, but still, like, even, I don't know, even if it's not explicitly like a, a, a reference to a kind of penetrative erotic sensibility or something, like, it's, it, it still has that cadence. I mean, that's, yeah. that's there. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, it's sort of like this. I was talking to my wife about this, uh, uh a couple nights ago. Uh, we were talking about Dracula mm-hmm. and she was saying, you know, when she finally got around to reading it, it was kind of boring. And that's okay. That's fair enough. That's kind of true. Uh, but you know, the, the sexual politics of Dracula are so weird. I, I, 
Bram Stoker most likely did not mean this, but you know, if you take a look at that novel, um, when three women are, are sort of, uh, approaching a man and, um, you know, feverishly draining his bodily fluids. I mean, three women and one man <laughs> draining his bodily fluids. I mean, that is horror. Yeah. And that is the root of horror. Now, when, when three good, sturdy, uh, upright British males, okay, one of them's American, but, you know, he's a cowboy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when they, when they, you know, work together to all at once pump a woman full of their fluids. Yes. You know, just pump them right into her all at once, not one at a time. Um, you know, that's the height of chivalry, right? <laughs> but three women sucking the fluids out of one man. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horror. It's just yeah, sheer yeah. terror. And I, I would prefer not to talk about it. Once you, once you say it out loud, you can't, you can't you really unhear can't, the sexual right. politics of that novel. You really can't. And you really can't get away from the fact that like, this is about a, a magically charismatic, uh, Eastern European man running away with the flower of English girlhood. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all the same. Well, you know, it's in the Gothic mode. This, this terror of the, of the, of the swarthy, uh, Italian or Balkan, you know, uh, uh running yeah, I, away with our Protestant purity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's right there. But anyway, to, to get back into this, it does have this, I, I think what you, what you reasonably called a sort of libidinal cadence. Mm -hmm. I thrust it in. Right. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Um, the the language is the language of some kind of sexual activity, some oh, yeah. kind of most likely sexual violation. Um, can I do this without disturbing the old man? Yeah. And, um, the, the thing is, here's what he does. Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously, cautiously for the hinges creaked. I ended it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. Okay. It's impossible to do the work. <laughs> uh, again, put your pervert hat on here. Um, no, but the there's this way that uh, he keeps going back to it. It becomes a repetitive sort of obsessive compulsive thing. Mm -hmm. And to Again, to get back to the root of this, the sexualized language of walking into the room, uh, along with this kind of filmed over eye, just sort of lend itself to this reading of this text as a kind of frustration yeah. at not being acknowledged or not being eroticized. There's a blocker mm -hmm. to the old man's um, ability to gaze and desire mm -hmm. and there's something in this narrator that wants to be gazed at and desired and there's something in this narrator that also wants to look himself and the sort of frustrating object is the thing that he wants to see and also the thing 
that he doesn't want to see. Yeah. It's, you know, to use those psychoanalytic terms, he's fallen in love with his symptom. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's the night that, um, the old man is startled and wakes up that everything goes wrong. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was opening the door little by little and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. Mm-hmm. He wants to be known and unknown. Right. And we have these secret deeds and thoughts, these unknown motivations, which appear to be unknown even to the narrator. I fairly chuckled at the idea and perhaps he heard me for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no, his room was black as pitch with the thick darkness for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. So he's still pushing the door, pushing his head in. I had my head in, was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, who's there? Okay. <clears throat> he sits there and listens to him. And everything is absolutely silent until presently I heard a slight groan and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Is he eroticizing the fear that this old man has? Um, Because in just a second, that uncanny, sublime, overcharged with awe is going to be connected to this excess of aesthetic ability and this excess of excitation. Mm-hmm. And okay, I'll, I'll read the passage first and then I'll explain it. Um, many a night just at midnight when all the world slept, it is welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse uh, crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket, which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with those suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, between his death and approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unexpected shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. Okay, again, (laughs) the head in the room, uh, thrusting his head in. There's this kind of weird, creepy eroticizing of violence in there or eroticizing of violation. Uh, But mixed with that is this way in which the narrator stays up all night, overly excited until he hears that until he's sort of hollowed out from the excitation and has to discharge this moan of awe. Uh, Okay. So, here's where Freud comes back. Um, 
Early on in his career, he had made the claim that the the sex drive was the primal urge. It was the sort of drive at the heart of all drives, and that all neuroses could be linked back to um, sex. Yeah. Uh, he changed his mind late in his career because he said that sex is just one model for this. Now you have to give a thousand caveats with Freud. Um, <laughs> a thousand and one, who knows? Yes. Uh, but he, he seems in his later career to be thinking specifically of male sexuality, but here's how it goes. Okay. He changes his mind late in his career and says, basically, it's the death drive that animates everything. That's the underlying, um, the sort of underlying drive, the un- underlying unconscious urge that we dare not acknowledge. And he's drawing, you know, in a lot of weird ways, Freud is a combination of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, but he's drawing from that sort of Nietzschean insight that part of what we desire is the bliss of not thinking. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of bliss of annihilation where we, we don't have to be conscious animals. Yeah. Um, okay. So for Freud, what we really want beneath everything is to cease being because the cessation of being is the cessation of thought. And thought is a burden, you know, in the, in that post romantic way or that late romantic way, uh, Freud is thinking about thinking as a burden. And there's that long tradition of that. I mean, we, we looked at that with Paradise Lost that, you know, mm-hmm. in Paradise Lost, the inciting trauma is self-awareness, self-consciousness yeah. and consciousness itself, you know, um, so what we do as humans is try to participate in things that move us beyond having to think. And Freud's model is a biological model. It works like this. Um, <clears throat> all right. Here's my way of doing this. Uh, since um, I guess about the, the middle part of the quarantine, I started running. I started jogging again. Yeah. And I jog for a couple of different reasons. Um, there's health, there's um, fitness, there's to raise my immune system, there's all that kind of stuff. There's to make myself last longer because, um, you know, I want to be here for my children. Mm-hmm. But there's also, there's also the kind of, unthinking that comes with it. I can put my headphones on. I can go for 30 to 40 minutes and I just, I don't have to be, all I have to do is just be in motion and that's it. Yeah. It's a kind of annihilation within the activity. Um, I, I suppose that's a, a helpful way to address this desire for unthinking, but look at other biological models, you know, think about the, the, you know, your first kegger, do you stop at one? No. Do you stop at three? No, you don't stop until you, you know, pass out in your vomit and vomit and you pass out. <laughs> um, right. it's, it's the external pressure that leads to this, um, 
desire for release and annihilation that, you know, leads you to excess drunkenness until you finally just, you know, collapse. Um, think about other biological processes, which are the same way. Excitation, 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 excitation to the point of physical and mental collapse. And Freud's clearly thinking of orgasm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the narrator here is describing orgasm. Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, I think we'll become more, much more apparent uh, soon. <laughs> With because remember the the lantern and and that like the I felt like when I was reading like the the description of you know the the narrator you know very just with with all excess of care and and focus leaning into the room and just barely cracking open the lantern just barely mm-hmm. like i i will probably like i i i'm i'm much too online i'm much too on the internet so i know things that i would rather <laughs> not know um but i i don't know if if you or the audience at large is familiar with the phenomenon of, or the sexual practice of edging which yeah. is the the purposeful denial of oneself of orgasmic release uh yes. in, in the midst of an erotic act um i've never practiced it myself uh because like hey come on you know what are we doing here but <laughs> that was, i was instantly <laughs> well, who like, has the time who has the time exactly my, my go-to <laughs> that's my go-to for like Everything and you know, God bless you if you're out there exploring the realms of human experience. But for me, who has the time? Um, but uh, I, I was immediately put in mind of that, though, like that kind of that you know, you have you 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 have this container right, which contains the bright explosive element, and you're just and you're just barely giving it uh, the slightest release and not really the release just teasing the release yeah um it was instantly put me in mind of uh, of edging <laughs> well and the release doesn't come no it's it, it, the the murder itself is eroticized the release doesn't yeah. come until the the eye is wide open right and it does and does not see it does and does not desire right right and it's at that moment that the narrator <clears throat> he hears the old man's terror. And again, the terror is like the fear is transmitted as a kind of, it's almost an eroticized terror. It says, but even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It, uh, it grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Um, it's excitation. Yeah. Right? It's arousal. It's definitely arousal. Um, but the beating grew louder. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come with a loud yell. I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. There he shrieked is. once, <laughs> once only. Yeah, this is the release. Yeah. But Daniel, um, like not to get too personal, but if you were going to kill an old man who you lived with, whose relationship to you is really kind of undefined. Um, and you've been sneaking up on him, you know, every night for the past seven days, uh-huh. uh, how would you choose to kill him? Well, I mean, 
I, I that's a good question. I mean, it's so personal, right? I would I would want to get my own hands on, right? Strangulation, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Well, would you throw him on the ground, throw the mattress and covers on top of him, and then lie on top of him until he was dead? It does seem a bit sort of roundabout. <laughs> um, there's a way in which they do finally share a bed together, and that's when he kills him. Oh, there it is. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's – that's literally what he does. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find this deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. Uh, that's what he does. He he throws the man on the ground, throws the bed on top of him, and he jumps on top of the bed to smother him. Right, and using his, his preternaturally heightened sense of hearing to as he's sitting gleefully atop this pile of bedding under which an old man is suffocating, he can clearly pick out the actual heartbeats as they slow and stop. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Now I, I think what kind of draws creepy readers to this um, at a young age is the dismemberment scene. Yes. You know, he, he hacks the body up. I mean, you know, as a creepy 12 year old, this is why I read this story. <laughs> you mean, you mean, like, you mean it wasn't for the bizarre Freudian eroticism? <laughs> well, as a creepy 42 year old, I'm reading this right. for the bizarre Freudian eroticism. <laughs> that's what we call, that's what we call growing up, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, the dismemberment scene is there and then the discovery scene and we return to the idea of the return of the repressed. Mm -hmm. um, the the old man's beating heart is rediscovered. The um, the crime is discovered and the narrator is discovered. Whatever you try to keep down is going to come back out yes. in an expression of this uh, neurotic tendency. But the same could be said for the murder itself, the subdued, mm -hmm. you know, violent eroticism seems to be the thing that is repressed that comes out in the act of the murder. I think I've sort of linked the lack of desire, lack of acknowledgement with um, the, the sort of eye that both does see and does not see with this really bizarre eroticism with the opening of the lantern and thrusting in the head and then the actual murder, right? Um, it, it does sort of have something to do with this frustrated desiring or this repressed desiring or this kind of way in which the narrator himself is this unacknowledged being in the old man's life. And that gets me to the other thing that I sort of started out with. Yeah. Um, is this a master servant relationship? Oh, is this a master slave relationship? Oh, uh, now I think you could I think you could do a reading of this story as uh, an examination of that kind of repressed acknowledgement. Uh, it's something in something is in there concerning a power relationship between the old man and the narrator and it's never clearly defined. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this goes back to uh, what we sort of started talking about. Poe was a Bostonite, but he was also raised kind of as a Southern gentleman. Right. And he seems to have had a lot of ambivalence about that through his the the later part of his life after the break with his stepfather, mm-hmm. like the the break after um, West Point. He he seems to have had much more ambivalence about the claims for aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see that in Follow the House of Usher, which yeah, yeah. I want to make the claim is using aristocracy as a horror story. Oh. Absolutely. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I, I absolutely yeah. agree it that way. And I think it's very, it's very, uh, I, I think with the rejection of aristocracy, like, cause you know, you think of like, well, you know, the United States of America from its inception, you know, that had like the anti-monarchial whatever, and this kind of, you know, it's in the constitution that no American citizen can have like, uh, a, a title of nobility and all that, you know, whatever. But it's really not – that's not yeah, the it, case. That's not the case at all. And it's especially not the case in the antebellum South, which were very self-consciously yeah. mo- modeling themselves not just on aristocracy but specifically on Roman aristocracy. They were modeling themselves off of what they called the kind of the the, the superior Mediterranean slave-owning societies, which is an interesting kind of – you'll see the, the racism switch flip later <laughs> – but you had a lot of, you know, yeah. bizarre theories about how the south- the southern slaveholder aristocrat was actually descended from the Latinate peoples rather than the the gross Anglo-Saxons with their primitive egalitarianism, <laughs> you know. But um yeah, that was uh, a very that was a very if you're if you're rejecting the notion of aristocracy and if you're presenting it as a horror, that is so yeah. much more a that is a basal rejection. That is a root and branch rejection of the social order at work in Maryland, you know, where he was sort of most famously sort of associated with Baltimore and all that. Right. So there's, this is really kind of strange. And I, I tried to do a little bit of cursory research. Like, like I said at the top, this is kind of a last minute project and I'm sure there's much more that's been said on this. But I, I was trying to do some cursory research to see if Poe grew up with enslaved people in the house. Um, I couldn't find much. I, 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 I'm curious about this, and this speaks to my own ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his, you know, the Allen family, they, they were haute bourgeois. They were sort of high middle class, upper middle class. Mm-hmm. At least that's what it appears to be to me. And, um, as such, you know, they're not on a plantation. Uh, they're urban. They're in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> my hometown. Uh, and they, I, I'm not sure whether or not they would have owned people. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but it, it doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility. And there's an added tweak to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pose, I believe it was his grandmother. Cause he, you know, remember he still had biological family that was alive. Right. Um, I believe it was his grandmother, his aunt's mother, mm-hmm. right? Who 
when she died, bequeathed him a servant. Oh. Um, he sold the servant. Hmm. But that, I mean, again, this is sort of poking around in DLB and a couple of other sources. But that seems to have been a curious move. Um, one piece of speculation about this is that, all right, the person who he sold this person to, um, the terms that are used to describe that person after the fact maybe kind of seem to suggest that he sold the enslaved person who he inherited mm-hmm. to a freed African-American. And that, that might have been a way to set the person free without having to go through the complications of freeing someone. Right. Because there would have been, yeah, because there were a a lot of, (laughs) there was a lot of red tape to decide not to own a human being. That would be very interesting because I, I'm not sure what the legal status would be for, like, if non-white people were permitted to own slaves. Then they were. They were. Okay. Um, okay. I did. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I guess the uh, the I, Native Americans, I think especially Edward, among the Cherokee, there were in the emulation of uh, white civilization, quote unquote, were were there were several slave owning landholders. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. And um, I think it was uh, – let me let me make sure I'm getting the guy's name right. But there was a novel written by uh, an African-American writer um, about this, this, very, this very topic. Um, yeah, Edward P. Jones. He, he wrote a novel. Uh, what's the name of it? I'm looking it up right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote a novel, uh, sort of fictionalizing this, this situation. Um, yeah, I, I think it's the known world. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was the one. The known world is a novel he wrote about, uh, an African American slaveholder. Uh, but in Poe's case, the speculation seems to be that he was trying to get around what you called the red tape. There was this huge bureaucracy involved in setting a person free. It apparently wasn't as easy as all that. Yeah. And so there's some speculation that maybe he was doing that um, in, in this way. So, yeah. you know, be that as it may. I couldn't find a whole lot of information, but I would be curious, you know, and again, <laughs> I did this in the free hour. So I had while um, <laughs> one of my sons was, you know, pretending to cook food in his toy kitchen. Um, but the, <laughs> the, you know, it's, I, I, I'm very, very curious. and I, I'm sure there's been work done and now I'm probably going to spend, you know, 20 minutes before I crash, um, poking around, seeing, just what his attitude towards slavery was. He by no means was he an abolitionist because he was not living at the time in which that would have been sort yeah, of it's um a snowballing movement. Right. It's it's political valence was a good a good what seven, eight years away from when he died, you know, with like bleeding Kansas really being the, the thing that yeah. kicked it off. Yeah. But it does seem that he has some awareness of 
these kinds of relationships where the humanity of another person is just unacknowledged. Yeah. Now, the fact that he mixes that with this subdued eroticism, I mean, that's very creepy and strange. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that deserves a lot of unpacking and sort of rethinking. But um, I, I wanted to do this tonight because the story is so creepy and strange. It is. It's really and, and it's so much more. It's so much more economical than I thought it would be. I I've really come around to a real appreciation of the. I don't want to use the word economy again. Parsimony. <laughs> the the efficient yeah. the efficiency of language that both Bierce and Poe exhibit. Because and, and I and I don't know why I, you know, I I, I don't know I, I you know you have your own like, I guess it's 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 an artifact of like being kind of taught modernism and and your Hemingways and all that as being like ah oh, yes they were you know chopping away at the excess and getting to the you know, a honed tool or whatever, you know at least that's kind of the stereotype that was presented to me as I was coming up. Um, like that was what modernism was all about in architecture and art and, and literature mm-hmm. was this, this, this rejection of the, the, uh, the Baroque excess of the Victorian era, you know? Right. Um, but really like the, just the, the mood that's evoked, the, the oh, yeah. scenario that's evoked in what is what typically like three or four pages. Yeah. Uh, and printed. I mean, it was, it's really something. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, God damn, I'm going to have to get back into short fiction, man. This stuff's good. Well, <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing is that he was, a, he was an editor and he yeah, was a writer. Yeah. Like he was, he was a hack writer. I mean, I don't mean that dismissively. Like yeah. he, he was a magazine writer and he wrote for the literary magazines. He knew what would sell or what could sell, but he also knew, how to use his words. Like Bierce was also a journalist. I I guess that's the point that I'm trying to make that Poe was a journalist. Bierce was a journalist. These were guys who were involved in the, the sort of everyday construction of the publication. Well, okay. Whitman was a journalist too. Yeah. All right, fine. (laughs) That's a Oh, he's anything but sparse. Right. Um, But these were the guys who were coming at it, you know, yeah. Hemingway was a journalist as well. And, right, and right. he credited that towards his own sparse style. But yeah, yeah I, I, the modernists don't have a, a, a complete purchase on a sparse style. Right, right. And I would, I would think to, make, sparse um, style, to make another uh, questionable um, reference to 30, 40 year old popular music, um, I, I, it's this kind of, you know, the honed, delivering the the hit uh hit in the sense of drug use <laughs> delivering the hit yeah you know, kind of 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 method of creating it puts me in mind of like the ramones or the misfits at the height of their powers yeah where it's yeah. it's just delivering you that that rush of you know uh what amounts to bubblegum pop in yeah the in a mode that's much more uh, threatening and aggressive and raw, uh, but also yeah. is chiseled. It's perfectly chiseled. Yeah. 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 
Um, I, I do stand by Poe as the cure as opposed to Bruce <laughs> as the cramps, but that I, I that's you right, know, yeah. It's well, that's a whole different the early days. I that's suppose. a whole different mode of analysis. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about very bad metaphors to pop music. I mean, there's all sorts of <laughs> angles you can take on it, Claude. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's he's evocative of an atmosphere. He's evocative yes, of a yes. mood, and I, I think that's that's where he really hits off. Yep. So anyway, um, you know, to call him problematic, is, I think just scratching the surface. <laughs> I mean, come on, you're going to discover whole new this, problems to have if you dig into this guy. Yeah, but there is this way in which um, so much of his writing really turns on the return of the repressed. I, I mean, Jacques Lacan wrote a whole essay on the purloined letter, um, and the purloined letter is one of his detective tales. Detective tales, you know, Poe invented the detective story. Yes, um, his okay. Again, his detective is a ruined aristocrat who is basically this esthete who cares more about the sensation and the game of solving the crime than he does about, I guess, any kind of rule or any kind of anything like that. He's yeah. a, a, a French aristocrat whose family had been deposed and all he has left is all the books in this tiny apartment that he shares with this dude who's the narrator. Yeah, I mean, it's it, – Sherlock Holmes is a, an extraordinary ripoff of every aspect of Dupin. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Holmes, Holmes had cocaine, but Dupin has opium. Um, right. But in any case, the Perline letter is all about um, uh, 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 a hidden letter that's hidden right out in the open. The yeah. symptom is there to read it if you can. Um, I, I think the, the sort of unconscious sexual stuff is is really pretty apparent the 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 other thing that i think sort of deserves exploration is the relationship between these two and i would like to go back through a lot of poe to think about this the sort of master-servant relationship um the the story that comes to mind immediately is hop frog Mm -hmm. which is about um this court jester who's uh, you know servant to these um it, it's kind of like Rigoletto. He's the servant to these horrible, abusive masters who ends up getting his revenge by, you know, burning the whole palace down, mm-hmm. including himself. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's thrown in there as well. Um, I, I'm curious about Poe's antipathy yeah. to aristocracy and also the way that, you know, the return of the pressed, repressed also accounts for this inability to acknowledge these kinds of relationships around. Yeah. So, well, I, I hope that creeped everybody out. <laughs> no, this was, this was fascinating. And, and everybody at home, I just want you to know that when Claude and I were talking about this episode and like, you know, cause it was again, kind of a, kind of an emergency podcast, you know, emergency cast session, because, you know, we had an idea or Claude had an idea and I was, I was all for it. Um, that <laughs> Claude was a little nervous as to whether we could get half an hour out of it. <laughs> and I just, and I just want everyone to know, um, that this happens all the time. Claude is always being like, Oh, I'm just so worried if we can get whatever. And, and, and every time it's like, we have a great conversation. It's, it, we find so many new things to tease out. And I just, I just think it's very funny. 
<laughs> well, I'm anxious about many things. Well, I, I, I hope this was at least somewhat illuminating. I hope it, it changes how, how people read Poe. Um, or, or at least gives a, a, a different kind of lens to reading Poe. Yeah. Um, if you enjoy what we do, please uh, give us a, a kind rating and review on whatever uh, application you use to open this. Uh, that that would help us out a lot. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, you can find us uh, on the blog, which I'm probably going to start working on again. <laughs> uh, I sort of let that fall by the wayside, but I have uh, every intention to get that back up and running. Yeah. Uh, it's the Cannonball Podcast at WordPress.com, and uh, you know, check us out for more interesting and strange readings of <laughs> stories that you had no idea were this pervy when you came across <laughs> them back in in ninth grade English class. That's right, and. Well, happy Halloween. A happy Halloween to all and a, and a spooky uh, All Hallows Day. <laughs>